Hello and shalom. This is Brian Schwartzman, host of Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. So since baseball season's well underway, and by the way, pitchers are dominating hitters this year, I figured it was time to throw you a curveball. This month, in place of a regular episode, we've got a special treat. Our team at Evolve is thrilled to share America's First Bot Mitzvah, which is an episode of the Adventures in Jewish Studies podcast a project of the Association for Jewish Studies. So Evolve co-sponsored this episode and we are sharing it on our feed. It features Rabbi Deborah Waxman, president of Reconstructing Judaism and focuses on the history of the bat mitzvah and how this one innovation in Jewish life ultimately led to so many Jewish communities becoming more inclusive spaces. There's a, a bunch in here about the early days of Reconstructionism and our movement's founder, Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan. And don't worry, I promise we'll be back next month with an interview of an Evolve essay author. Until then, enjoy this episode and lehitra ot. See you later. Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. The Shabbat service on March 18, 1922, at the Society for the Advancement of Judaism Synagogue in Manhattan, started out like any other— the morning prayers were recited, followed by the Torah service, and then the Haftorah. But then something radical happened. Judith Kaplan, Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan's 12-year-old daughter, stood up from her seat in the pews and walked up to the pulpit. And she chanted from the Chumash, and then sat back down, and then they had a lovely lunch afterwards. This is Rabbi Deborah Waxman, the president of Reconstructing Judaism, the central organization of the Reconstructionist movement. The scene she describes might not sound revolutionary. In fact, when Kaplan recalled the event in her memoir, she wryly observed that when she took to the pulpit, no thunder sounded, no lightning struck. But what Kaplan did that day was a big deal. In fact, this low-key event is typically thought of as the first bat mitzvah ceremony in the United States. It paved the way for future bat mitzvahs and, eventually, much more inclusion of women and other groups in public Jewish ritual and practice. In this episode, we'll trace the history of the bat mitzvah ceremony, from its humble beginnings to the present day. Along the way, we'll note the ways that it's evolved over time and how it's both shaped and been shaped by American Jewish life. Before we dive into the history, let's get our terms straight. The Hebrew phrases bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah literally mean son of the commandments and daughter of the commandments, respectively. They refer to the age of adulthood, the point at which Jews are required to fulfill the mitzvot, or biblical commandments. According to Jewish law, this happens automatically at 13 in a day for boys and at 12 in a day for girls. Today, we usually use the terms bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah to refer to the ceremony that marks this coming of age. But for most of Jewish history, there's no record that this rite of passage was marked by any kind of ceremony. 
Starting in the Middle Ages, there was typically a minor public ceremony for boys, at least in the Ashkenazi world. Typically, they put on tefillin, phylacteries for the first time, and they were called up to the Torah. They had an aliyah for the first time. This is Melissa Clapper, a professor of history and director of women's and gender studies at Rowan University. As for girls, there are records of bat mitzvah rituals in 19th century Europe. For example, in traditional communities in Italy, specifically in Turin and Milan, girls would dress in white and they wore flower wreaths on their head and they would gather together at synagogues on a weekday, important that it's a weekday and not Shabbat, the Sabbath, and the girls would take turns. They would be in a group and they would take turns reciting prayers in the presence of the chief rabbi of Italy. This is Carol Balin, Professor Emerita at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion of New York. She's currently working on a book about the history of the bat mitzvah ceremony in America using testimonies of women from across the decades. But decades before the bat mitzvah ceremony took hold in the United States, confirmation was the main way of marking Jewish girls coming of age. So the confirmation ceremonies are first developed in the reform movement in Western Europe, and they really caught on in the United States, too, by the mid to late 19th century, mostly, again, in reform synagogues. They were typically associated with the holiday of Shavuot in the spring, which, not coincidentally, was around the same time as public school graduations were held. And so this seemed like a graduation, a moment to mark um, transition in adolescents' lives in general. Confirmation ceremonies were held for mixed groups of boys and girls rather than for an individual, and they usually happened at the age of 15 or 16. The choice of age was intentional. So they were removed from traditional understandings of when someone became a bar or a bat mitzvah, and it was very different from bar mitzvah. And in fact, the reform movement saw the ceremony of bar mitzvah as quote-unquote oriental, in other words, something antiquated and um, old and something that should be moved away from. But the decision to have confirmation at an older age was about more than rejecting the bar mitzvah. The idea of marking you know, religious adulthood at the age of bar mitzvah, let alone bat mitzvah, was just, just seemed silly to people. They, just, this was not, they were not adults. They were clearly not adults. Even, even child labor laws were starting to be passed. It was beginning to be understood that children should be in school. The age of um, school attendance, mandatory school attendance, was 14 in almost every state in the United States by this period. And so 13 was just clearly not adulthood. And you could make a stronger argument for 15 or 16. Confirmation also remedied the gender inequality that the bar mitzvah ceremony presented, Waxman adds. The ritual of confirmation rose up in the reform movement in the 19th century because of the egalitarian opportunities there, because it was a ceremony of of parity. And so even as it wasn't um, focused on one individual, but rather a cohort, that, that meant that that group of girls and boys would together come of age. By the late 19th century, confirmation ceremonies were very popular, especially in reform congregations and especially for girls. In fact, Clapper says, far more American girls had confirmation ceremonies than boys. Possibly because parents were more open to non-traditional educations and customs for girls than boys, but more likely because more boys left school and went to work earlier than girls in many American Jewish families, and the period of education, whether secular or religious, was over earlier for many boys than for girls. The ceremonies were often entertaining even theatrical. It was incredible in terms of its performance. It was a great pageant. There were white gowns or white robes. There were flowers. 
they were also quite stately affairs. The young people being confirmed would walk down the aisle in the synagogue in a very formal procession that they would line up typically with a rabbi. They would face the audience. They would be asked questions about religious life. Sometimes they would perform musical numbers. They would sing hymns. Sometimes they would say some prayers. Many confirmation ceremonies involved absolutely no Hebrew. Some did, but many did not. It was actually more of a sort of was resembled an old Catholic catechism in that the questions were very routine and ritualized and formalized. The students certainly knew them in advance and had dutifully memorized the right answers and the right way to say things. And so there was a real formality about it. And then usually the rabbi would provide some kind of invocation that welcomed the confirmants into the adult sacred community. And that was that. Although the confirmation ceremony caught on in a big way, some felt it wasn't the best way to mark the Jewish coming of age. Mordechai Kaplan was one of those people. Kaplan is best known as the founder of Reconstructionism, a Jewish movement that sees Judaism as a constantly evolving civilization. When Reconstructionism started in the 1920s, it was a stream within the conservative movement. So in 1922, when Kaplan founded the Society for the Advancement of Judaism, the site of his daughter's bat mitzvah, he was most strongly identified with conservative Judaism. Kaplan objected to the confirmation ceremony on the grounds that it wasn't based in Jewish tradition. What's more, he and many conservative leaders didn't share their reform peers' antipathy toward the bar mitzvah. What Kaplan wanted was a ceremony for girls. Kaplan himself, at the time, talked about the impact of the 19th Amendment, of women's suffrage. Seeing women gain the vote in the American context, he thought that was compelling He saw that as more and more opportunities were being created for women in the secular world, that unless the Jewish community overtly affirmed equal status for women as a positive thing and made more space for women to participate, then it was likely they would just exit completely. And he wanted to capture the creativity and the participation and the leadership possibilities of women within the Jewish realm. Kaplan first brought up the idea of a bat mitzvah ceremony at a synagogue board meeting on February 5th, 1922. He said, I think we should institute this new ritual. I think we should be creating a ceremony of parity for girls. And I would like to propose that my eldest daughter, Judith, who turned 12 a few months ago, become the first. The board heartily approved Kaplan's proposal. And just six weeks later, his daughter Judith took to the pulpit to mark her entry into Jewish adulthood. Judith was particularly well-positioned to pull off a bat mitzvah on such short notice. I mean, he literally decided the night before what she should do. And it it was because she was both very well-educated, very musically adept, and, and very game that she was able to step up and into what he asked her to do. Now, it's important to point out that the ceremony Judith had, while trailblazing, was not exactly like a typical bar mitzvah of the day. She stood just below the bima, the podium at which the Torah is read, and she didn't read from a Torah scroll, but instead from her personal chumash, or prayer book. The Torah, as she says in her memoir, was a respectable distance away. 
But by marking her bat mitzvah, Kaplan did open the door for other girls to have similar ceremonies, which they did, albeit in modest numbers. At first, these were mostly girls in Kaplan's congregation or daughters of Kaplan's disciples. But there were other notable exceptions. For example, bat mitzvah ceremonies became popular at two Jewish summer camps created in the 20s, both of which Kaplan's daughters attended. In those great outdoor spaces where informality reigned, bat mitzvah came alive. So, for example, at Camp Sedgwin in 1935, a woman named Gladys Saltpeter Kraft, who was born in 1923, became bat mitzvah. She's a 97-year-old woman, and she recalled Mordechai Kaplan making frequent visits to Camp Sedgwin, and she remembered Judith Kaplan heading up the music program. And when I asked Gladys what portion she read, she burst out in Haftorah trope, Nachamu, Nachamu. She knew it at 97. Another exception was girls who had a twin brother, such as Alice Pritzker. Alice Ruth Pritzker was allowed to become bat mitzvah in 1932 at Temple of Aaron in St. Paul, Minnesota, a conservative synagogue, really on the bar mitzvah coattails of her brother, Edward. And the two became bar, bar bat mitzvah on a weekend in October. And their father, Leo, um, would always say, according to Alice's daughter, whom I spoke to, he used the nicknames for Alice and Edward. He said, if Sonny can be bar mitzvahed, Sissy can become bat mitzvahed. Still, bat mitzvah ceremonies weren't exactly taking American synagogues by storm. In 1931, a survey of conservative rabbis found that of the 110 respondents, only six had adopted the ceremony in their congregations. Some said they'd never even heard of it. It was only after World War II that the bat mitzvah ceremony started to gain traction, Waxman says. The Rabbinical Assembly conducted a survey in 1948 that revealed that one-third of all conservative congregations celebrated some form of bat mitzvah. By the mid-50s, that figure had jumped to about half of conservative congregations and one-third of reform congregations. Here's a clip of Judy Darsky at her bat mitzvah in 1955 at what was playfully known as the Mother Church of Reform Judaism, the Plum Street Synagogue in Cincinnati. Adonai Eloheinu, O Lord our God, my heart is filled with joy and gratitude at this sacred moment in my life. Standing here before thee in the presence of this congregation, my lips can only speak words of thanks unto thee for this great privilege and honor. It is through thy help and guidance that I have been able to reach this important occasion in my religious training. And now, having read in thy Torah on this Sabbath day, I come before thee to take my place as a bas mitzvah, a daughter of thy commandments. O Lord... The increased popularity of these ceremonies was likely related to other changes in American Jewish life at the time. I think some of it does have to do with the standard narrative of American Jewish history about suburbanization and congregations moving outside of city centers and needing to attract Jews who were moving away. And so synagogues that really promoted bar mitzvahs and then eventually bar mitzvahs, that was a way to keep people coming in. If there's a celebration and not just the, with, from within the congregation, but from outside the congregation also, and maybe those people would be interested in what they saw at the, at the synagogue. Waxman thinks the rising popularity of Jewish summer camps in the post-war years, which we discussed in our camp episode last season, 
also played a role. That's where it really took hold. I mean, Ramah really promoted education, really promoted um, skills acquisition, Hebrew acquisition, and a lot of girls became bat mitzvah, and then they brought it home and started to advocate for it more. Bat mitzvah ceremonies even started to happen in some Orthodox congregations. There's an Orthodox congregation on Shea Emes in Brooklyn, led by Rabbi Jerome Tov Feinstein. And in 1944, after a bar mitzvah service, a mother came over to him, and he records this in one of the journals of Orthodox Judaism, She comes over to Rabbi Feinstein and she says, Rabbi, why don't you do something for the girls? This is in 1944, really important date in terms of understanding the impact of of World War II and the beginnings of understanding what was happening in Europe and the murder of of millions of Jews. And he said, you know, I'm going to do it. And the following spring, he implemented a bat mitzvah class. So it was a group of girls who would study together. And then they had a ceremony together as a group. And he said, these are his words, an Orthodox rabbi, girls should be given the opportunities to eliminate the feeling that in the Orthodox synagogue, they do not count. You might be wondering, is this when the bat mitzvah ceremony started to look more like a bar mitzvah ceremony? Well, not exactly. At the SAJ, the progressive synagogue Kaplan founded, girls did start to read from the Torah sometime in the 1940s. But in most congregations, bat mitzvah ceremonies were still decidedly different. For one thing, Balin says, they were usually held on Friday night. Why Friday nights? Friday nights is on Shabbat, of course. It's part of the Jewish Sabbath, but it's an, it's considered inferior um, to Saturday morning, of course, when the Torah is read. So there was there, it was sort of like, we'll allow the girls to have this, but we're going to do it on a Friday night. Because in most cases, girls aren't going to read the Torah anyway, so we're going to relegate it to a Friday night. But perhaps the biggest difference was what a bat mitzvah led to, which was, namely, nothing. For boys, the ceremony was, or at least could be, the beginning of their participation in public Jewish ritual. But for girls, it was a one-off. Some people were not happy with this double standard. When girls could be called to a Torah for a bat mitzvah or read from the Torah or have an aliyah, then the question is, well, then why can't women, right? Why is this the last time that girls ever even have the opportunity to do this? At the SAJ, the girls themselves raised the issue at a congregational meeting in 1945. And they were not only looking for the bat mitzvah, they were also, they, they were looking at things like carrying the Torah on Simcha Torah, which girls were not doing at that point, and said, if we can, if we can read from the scroll on our bat mitzvah, so that taboo is has been set aside. Surely they said we can carry it as well, as well as some of the scrawny old men. There was definitely adolescent attitude in it as well. A lively debate ensued, but no decision was made until 1950 when the SAJ voted to allow women to be called to the Torah after their bat mitzvah. They also decided to count women in a minion the 10 people required for Jewish public prayer. This was a significant break with the rest of the conservative movement and arguably marked the beginning of Reconstructionism as a separate branch of Judaism. Despite the gains of the 40s and 50s, it would take a couple more decades until women started to gain true equality in American Jewish ritual and practice. In 1972, for example, Sally Presand became the first woman in the U.S. to be ordained as a rabbi. 
A year later, the conservative movement officially allowed women to be counted in a minion. Waxman, Clapper, and Balin all agree that the rise of second-wave feminism in the 60s and 70s, led by women like Gloria Steinem, had a lot to do with these changes. For one thing, it made girls and women feel empowered to advocate for equal rights, and that's exactly what many did. In 1975, for example, Sally Gottesman wrote a letter to her conservative synagogue asking to be the first girl in the congregation to have her bat mitzvah on a Saturday. Here's Gottesman as an adult reading her letter. Dear ladies and gentlemen of the ritual committee, next year I will have reached the age of my bat mitzvah and would like to have it on a Saturday morning. This means a great deal to me because women play an important part of every role in Jewish life. Why is my part in our temple not equal to a boy's my age? This service may be strange to tradition for a little while, but my question is, im shav imatai. My education is as complete as a boy's my age, and knowing that I am an equal makes me want to continue my studies. Knowing I can't fully participate in any activity, when can I hope to achieve a first-class status? I would greatly appreciate if the ritual committee would change this practice and let girls be called to the Torah. Very truly yours, Sally Gottesman. The feminist movement also raised other interesting questions about gender equality. Must women's religious practice and must women's religious spirituality mirror men's? Like I don't, one of the reasons I ended up at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College instead of the Jewish Theological Seminary is because I didn't want to become a halachic male. I wanted to explore deeply what it meant to be a woman rabbi embodying my body and exploring what religious leadership looks like in this way. Inspired by the women's movement, many women in the 70s and especially in the 80s decided to have an adult bat mitzvah ceremony, Clapper says. It was often women who were really involved in the Jewish community, but had not had the chance to have bat mitzvahs themselves, who were most interested in that. They, a lot of those women were people who wished they had had a bat mitzvah. For women who had marked their coming of age, but then had been barred from participating in other public rituals, Jewish feminism fulfilled an important need. Many of the people who got involved in Jewish feminism in the 1970s were people who had had a bat mitzvah, found you know, that moment of their religious lives really significant, and then didn't have anything that they could do after that. And so Jewish feminism for them was intensely personal. These are really you know, educated, committed, devout, regardless of denomination, but devout in their own way, to whatever that was, to being Jewish. And they were stymied in their ability to show that in any kind of public forum. Orthodox congregations also felt the impact of the feminist movement, with bat mitzvah ceremonies becoming more common around this time. Because of Orthodox Judaism's strict adherence to halakha, or Jewish law, these ceremonies usually look different from those in more liberal movements. Bat mitzvah ceremonies happen outside of regular Shabbat worship, either in one of two venues. One, in a women's tefillah group, in a women's prayer group. A women's prayer group is a group of women that gathers that is not counted as a minion. A second venue where girls are allowed to speak before a mixed congregation, men and women, would be outside of Shabbat services, but maybe in the synagogue. So for example, on a Shabbat afternoon, during Malava Malka, which is the, the third ritual meal of Shabbat, a girl might be able to give a Devar Torah, which is what began to happen. Moving into the 1990s, Balin says, 
even some ultra-Orthodox communities started to mark girls' coming of age. In 1993, Chabad Lubavitch creates bat mitzvah clubs. You know, they meet monthly. Sometimes mothers are included. Sometimes it's just for daughters. But they are designed, and this is according to their website, designed to empower. And notice they use that word, very 90s word, right, about empowering men and women. It comes out of, you know, 15 years or so after the rise of of second wave feminism. These classes, clubs, are designed to empower every 11 to 13-year-old girl, quote, to become strong, smart, and spiritual, who understand there's more to a bat mitzvah than a party. In the last 20 years or so, with the issue of whether girls should be allowed to have a bat mitzvah long settled, communities have moved on to new questions. For example, how can these ceremonies be more inclusive of Jews from diverse backgrounds? In 2019, the parents of Batya Sperling Milner convinced their Orthodox congregation in Washington, D.C. to take up this challenge. Their daughter wanted to chant from the Torah for her bat mitzvah, just like anyone else. There was just one problem. Batya is blind, and there was no Braille translation of the Torah trope, the musical notation used for chanting. Batya's parents solved that problem, recruiting an engineer friend to develop the first Braille translation of trope. But there was another wrinkle. Here's Batya explaining in an interview with the Washington Post. Technically, you're supposed to see the Torah and you're supposed to read from the Torah. So that was a problem. Her mother, Eliza, poured over Jewish legal sources and was able to find an argument for allowing a blind person to read from the Torah. The result was a ceremony that made history and allowed Batya to do exactly what she wanted, have a bat mitzvah like any other girl. For others, the ceremony is a way to bolster their sense of belonging. Balin gives the example of Gina Drengel and her daughter Anna, who had their bat mitzvah ceremonies just five months apart at their Reformed Temple in Queens, New York. So Anna, the daughter of a black mother and a white father, born and raised a Jew, had a straight path to the Bema by the age of 13. She went to religious school. She was just like all the other kids in her Hebrew school class. For her mother, Gina, the path to the Bema wasn't quite as direct. As a black girl raised in the Catholic Church, Gina nevertheless felt drawn to Judaism. She ended up converting as an adult, marrying a Jewish man, and becoming active in her synagogue. At the age of 48, she decided she wanted to have a bat mitzvah ceremony. The daughter summed it up in this way. She says, my bat mitzvah meant that I was on my way to becoming a Jewish woman. But for my mom, her bat mitzvah validated her as a Jewish woman. Some communities are also considering how Jewish coming-of-age ceremonies can be more gender-inclusive. The terms bar and bat mitzvah, after all, are inherently gendered, which raises a question. So what do you do if you straddle the mechitza, so to speak, and you don't fit into either one of these categories? That was the case for Ruby Marks of Brookline, Massachusetts. Ruby Marks wanted to do something in the middle for their rite of passage. Ruby said, Judaism is a big part of my family. We keep kosher. My older sister had a bat mitzvah, and I knew I'd have to have one too, but I didn't want to be called a girl, and I didn't want a bar mitzvah either. So what did they do? 
Ruby became Temple Beth Zion's first B-mitzvah. And B in Hebrew, B means in, in the mitzvah, on the mitzvah, with the mitzvah, by the mitzvah. The name says a lot and the ceremony said a lot. Ruby is not alone. In the past couple of years, interest has grown in marking the Jewish coming of age in a gender-neutral way. In 2019, the website Keshet, which provides resources for queer Jewish youth, even published a guide to the B-mitzvah. Today, as we approach the 100th anniversary of Judith Kaplan's bat mitzvah, perhaps what's most remarkable about the ceremony is how unremarkable it's become. It's really just taken for granted almost across the board. I mean, Orthodox girls have bat mitzvahs. They may, they don't look the same. They're not necessarily in synagogues, but they, they are marked. So that even the most right-wing Orthodox girls' schools, for instance, typically have a kind of group bat mitzvah celebration. That would not have been the case 100 years ago. I mean, it has become an accepted thing to not just, you know, okay, now you've had this birthday and you are legally obligated, and so now you have to fast on all the fast days and that kind of thing, but really marking it in, so, in some way. And that's, that's really significant. When you consider the entire sweep of Jewish history, this major shift happened rather quickly, and it was the bat mitzvah girls themselves who got the ball rolling. These 12 and 13-year-old girls are coming into the Jewish limelight, coming onto the bima, and they themselves begin to chisel away at the gender divide between men and Judea, men and women in Jewish life. I mean, it's remarkable. Before adult women, these girls begin to pave the way. They begin to change the attitudes uh, around what kind of Jew can do and be in the Jewish community. The result has been something much bigger than even Kaplan himself could have imagined. Bat Mitzvah was originally conceived as a corrective right? It corrected to girls' exclusion from Jewish study and practice. It was instituted as an add-on, you know, it was a complement to bar mitzvah. It was never in the beginning conceived as a gateway to girls and women's regular, and I use the word regular very emphatically, regular and equal participation in worship. But with each successive bat mitzvah, with each generation of girls who come up to the bima, the Jewish public becomes accustomed to seeing girls front and center in prayer life. Normalizing the participation of girls and women in Jewish ritual and practice helped blaze a trail for other groups who may have felt marginalized. Girls were the first minority, and I use that in quotes, to ascend the bima, but they're not the last. They open the door for Jews of all backgrounds, all stripes, colors, conversion, non-conversion, secular observant to come onto the bima, to come into Jewish life in an authentic way that becomes accepted and acceptable and even embraced. As a rabbi, Waxman is inspired by the ways the bat mitzvah ceremony has evolved over time. And all this progress makes her wonder. What other creative and vital acts do we want to take to continue this glorious evolution of the Jewish civilization, this exciting and enlivening engagement with the Jewish people? Amen.
Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Salo W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. Jen Richler is the lead producer for this episode. Today's episode was produced in partnership with Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations, a project of reconstructing Judaism. In an era where civil discourse is hard to find, Evolve models respectful, holy conversations about the urgent issues of the day. In its podcast, web conversations, and essays, Evolve offers fresh perspectives on a range of issues, including race, gender, climate change, Israeli-Palestinian relations, social justice, and yes, even God. Find it all at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to the American Jewish Archives, the Jewish Women's Archive, and Yaffa Sadikman for the clips you heard in today's episode. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish Studies member organization, featuring an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org to learn about joining if you're a Jewish Studies scholar or to find out how to bring a Jewish Studies scholar to your community. If you'd like to support the AJS and learn more about what we do, we invite you to join our new Friends of the AJS group, which will keep you informed about the latest research, books, and developments in the field of Jewish studies. For more information, go to associationforjewishstudies.org forward slash friends. Thanks for listening.